You are listening to the Next Best Picture podcast, and this is our interview with the screenwriter for the film Bombshell, Charles Randolph. Hello, everyone. You are listening to the Next Best Picture podcast. I'm your host, Matt Neglia, and joining me today, I have Academy Award winner for the 2015 film The Big Short and the writer of the new film Bombshell, Charles Randolph. Charles, how's it going today? It's going well, Matt. Thank you for asking. It's going well. Good. Yeah, the film is set to open up actually here in a few days' time. Um, It's got a very, very star-studded cast. It's also tackling some very, very important issues. And I want to first start off by asking, what was, you know, you're hot off the heels of winning an Academy Award for The Big Short. Uh, What was the interest in this particular story to you? Well, you know, I obviously have heard from female friends over the years stories of harassment. Um, One friend in particular who was a server in a restaurant had some pretty horrifying stories. So it's always sort of been something I've been thinking about. Um, And, you know, so so that's... First and foremost, that you know, then then the the characters, you know, the 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 people at Fox were just so fascinating. You know, they they were the least likely people to stand up and do this thing that they did. The women there, um, in some ways, uh, in part because they came from a community, a culture where it was not part of the culture to 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 to, to be overtly feminist in any way. So that was interesting. They were complicated, engaging characters. You know, who who did sort of a Brave thing, even though, um, even though, and some, and sometimes very brave, even though you know you would not expect it, and they were quirky and unique, um, and proved that this is an issue that transcends partisanship. Yeah, I, I definitely think that that is true. Personally speaking, especially when I watch the movie, there are a lot of people out there that don't, and they don't agree with that, and. I imagine you were consciously aware of that probably when writing that you knew there would be some people who would never view these women as people. They would always be the women who work at Fox News. So where was the line for you in treating these characters as human beings who had something horrible happen to them versus um, the people that we see on our television screens that work at Fox News? Yeah, I mean, that bar for me is extremely low because I'm, I'm going to humanize anybody, no matter, you know, anytime I'm going to portray them. That, that's what film does, right? Film is inherently mm-hmm. humanizing. The minute you put somebody on the screen played by an actor, it changes our relationship to them and we can't keep them in our boxes, our, our easy boxes. Um, yeah, I was certainly aware that there would be pushback to particularly, not Gretchen so much as Megan, you know, but I always say that's not a bug, it's a feature. That's precisely why I wanted to tell her story is because it was interesting. It was a story of someone who, you know, uh, is sort of the perfect, it's sort of a perfect bystander narrative because she's a woman who thinks she controls this conversation at work, at the place she works. She does not. She learns that. Um, but she, you know, she, she comes to understand that her own um, silence has made her complicit in Roger Ailes' ability to, to you know, prey on other women. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, that's a powerful story to, to tell and a powerful story to learn, no matter who you are. Certainly, I think we all agree that no matter what your politics, you don't deserve to be harassed. And, and I think that's, that's 
something that everybody going into the theaters feels. But at the same time, I think what I hope that you, the step beyond that, that I hope you get to is, uh, you know, if you bring a certain amount of goodwill to the, your viewing of the, of, of, the, of the film, is that, you know, this there's something very moving and very cinematic about a complex, contradictory person who does a good thing. Yeah, uh, I, I think so. I mean, I've I've definitely had experiences in storytelling uh, where, especially in episodic like television, where we start off hating a character, and then we start to feel pity for said character over the course of years and years of watching them, and as they yeah. grow, and then you're like, wow, it's amazing how I could start off really despising this person, and now I actually feel something for them by the end of it all, because it is touching on something human, like you're uh, describing. Yeah, and then I'm going to argue that that's great for us as writers, right? Because if you have a strong opinion about someone, I can get you to laugh at them really easily. And if I can get mm-hmm. them to la- you to laugh at them, I can get you to laugh with them. And once you're laughing with them, I can make them break your heart. And, you know, it's, it's, it's this thing that you want to avoid, particularly with anyone who's you know, been the victim of a crime. And that's the kind of earnest passivity that we, that we assign to people who we think we already have, they already have our empathy. And there's a, there's a weird kind of resistance that goes with that. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. you know, they're, 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 you know, they're, they're the, the victim in an SVU episode. We, you know, their function is almost token in our hearts and in our heads in the narrative. And so we don't fully always engage with them. We're a little resistant. And since our job is to try and sneak past the emotional defenses of our audiences in some ways who are putting up barriers to any time they can feel the calculus, any time they can feel us attempting to, 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 to try and, and, and pull their heartstrings. You know, people you think you don't like or people you think you don't want to identify with can be sometimes the people that we are most engaged by. Right. And, you know, it's yeah. a little bit of a Tony Soprano phenomenon. Well, you know, you think, you know, you think, you know, this person, you think that, you know, but then you can sort of discover a certain level of complexity about them. Yeah, no, I, I definitely think that it's a good conversation starter at the very least. And that's what I always go to the cinema yeah. for is to be challenged. So yep. I always appreciate that. How did um, the public perception of Megyn Kelly play into the way that you wrote the, the role? Because there are some who would argue that this is really Gretchen Carlson's story, but Megyn Kelly plays such a prominent role within this film. Um, so can you talk a little bit about like her public perception and uh, if that had a way in on the process of writing? Yeah, it? no, it's, it's, a, it's a fantastic question. The difficulty with Gretchen is she's fired, you know, halfway through the film, right? So she's mm-hmm. physically off screen, right? She physically has to leave the building, right? So there's, that's problem number one. So she was very hard to find a way to carry her all the way through. I tried in early, in early treatments to sort of focus on her and it just, there was a problem. And then that was, if we knew she was already taping, there was nothing new to discover about her. And, you know, we would be, it would be basically a story about her dealing with the consequences of her choices, which is a powerful narrative, but involved none of the other characters in the world. So that was always a problem with Gretchen. So what I wanted to do is I wanted to then take that problem and say, okay, let's have these women function differently in the narrative. So that Megyn Kelly is our narrative center. She's our Virgil. She's the one who takes us through the world. Gretchen is our moral center. She's the person whose moral choices frame the story. And then mm-hmm. Kayla, a character I make up, is the emotional center, the, the place where the person we're most emotionally invested in. And so what I try to do is sort of break it, the narrative out that way so they all fulfill different functions. So to answer your question without Megan Kelly, I always knew that I needed Megan to, to serve this other role. And so 
basically, you know, what I was trying to do is I was trying to get to a place where I could tell the story of Megan, our Megan, which may or may not be the same as real Megan. That's, that's up for you to decide. But our Megan, who is someone who, you know, at the end of the day, doesn't want to stand up and say, this happened to me, who sees herself as the voice of you know, women's rights at the network, who sees herself as the future of the network, hears this thing happens, knows it's true, doesn't want to say anything, but then makes the choice to do so. And um, that's, you know, that's a pretty compelling narrative and a narrative we don't tell very often, right? The bystander narrative. Uh, We normally tell the victim narrative, you know, and I, and so, and I, in some ways I think telling the bystander narrative because it's new, because it's something that, uh, affects all 100% of us and not just, you know, people who've experienced harassment at the hands of, of some, some jerk. Um, you know, that, that, that felt like a, a powerful way to frame the story. Um, yeah. And, and, and it made sense to make our narrative, our narrative thrust. Now, this is not an adaptation. And for a story that is centered around people who are unwilling to stand up and talk, like you said, how did you go about getting information on what the working environment was like at Fox News and other information? Uh, were people eager to talk to you uh, when writing this film? You know, it's, you know, and I'm sure you've experienced this yourself in your own work. It's always a complicated thing because the earlier you get real people involved, then they're on your shoulder while you're writing. And that can be a problem. At the mm-hmm. same time, if you don't engage with real people, you're always going to end up maybe missing something. So you want to figure out a way to involve the real people, you know, as you need them, as they work for telling the most honest, compelling story. And in this case, you know, I had the had the benefit of Gretchen and Megan both having written books. Uh, a lot of the women who told their stories of their experience around Ailes did so in affidavits. Uh, and I always try to take people at their word so that if if, if someone like Julie Rajinsky tells her story to the press or she tells her story in an affidavit, I'm going to believe that first and foremost. And so that then I start with that. And then, you know, uh, obviously, I, I will start to talk to people once we move closer towards production. And in this case, a lot of people wanted to talk. Generally, when a film has, you know, movie stars attached and, and you know, it's going towards production, people are um, much more interested in sort of raising their hand and saying, okay, I'm willing to have a conversation with you. What I try not to do is I not, try not to put someone's NDA at risk if I know I can't use them. Uh, Julie Rudzinski is another great example of someone who was very poorly served by Fox and the experience of our culture after, after Fox, frankly. She's had a hard time. A Hollywood Reporter has an article on that today, but mm. you know, um, you know, I would, I, I, I made a choice not because I didn't have a place for her narrative. I made a choice not to, 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 to bug her and 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 you know, because I'm, I'm not going to have her put her NDA in question just so I can go on a fishing exhibition. But other sure. people like uh, Juliet Huddy, I did sit down with. I, you know, I had one or two lines in a scene that she's in, that she's in. She's only in one scene in the film, but I wanted to check and see if they were accurate, and it turned out that one of them was not, so we took it out. Um, now, you're not just the writer of this film, Charles, but you're also credited as a producer on the film. And Charlize Theron is not just the star of the film, but she's also the producer on this movie as well. Can you talk about what the working collaboration uh, between the two of you have been like as writer, star, and co-producers? Sh- Charlize is shockingly fierce and so damn smart. 
And so she has instincts that are so well honed after so many years of doing this. It's something that we as writers and, and, and directors often don't appreciate is how many films actors get to be involved in a given year because we take you know, it takes us so long to do one. And yet, you know, she's you know, she does she's done on marketing level, she's done two or three marketing campaigns a year for twenty years, right? So yeah. so so she knows this stuff so well and she knows production so well. But she also also is someone who has a very strong political perspective and it's um you know it's certainly left of center but it's a beautifully open adult you know strong you know perspective and and you know she 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 wanted to make sure that we were servicing the story and we were servicing the women and and that we were doing the most sophisticated job we could and and in that sense it was a gift to me because you know I'm I I'm obviously a male and there's limits to what I can do and and know and and having a partner who could say okay this line here here's what I'm concerned about uh, was was terrific, and then once Jake came on board, obviously they have a strong relationship. So mm. that troika of producers was 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 a delight. You know, I got to say, um, she's uh, she's someone you want to you want to do do every movie with because she's just, <laughs> yeah. you know she's just very she's so damn smart, man. She's so smart. Yeah, definitely comes across for sure. Uh, last question. Uh, you were uh, recently reported to be uh, working on an upcoming project revolving around uh, WeWork. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the early stages of that and anything else that you also um, have coming up in the future that we can look forward to? Well, that, that, that one, the book's not even written yet. So that book's going to be a way out. That's not even, I don't think, I think she's, Katrina's not even done with that book until December, I believe. So that, that one's a, a ways out. I'm just fascinated. I, my wife's Israeli. I'm fascinated by Israeli culture. I'm fascinated by Japan, where I lived for a year. So the combination of Israel and Japan and Californian culture, all three sort of mixed together, sort of, you know, was 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 too delicious to pass up. So I'm sure. just now, I'm just now diving in. We'll find out. Uh, right now, I'm doing the story of John D. Rockefeller for uh, for De Niro and David O. Russell. Very exciting. Can't wait. The film is called Bombshell. It'll be out in theaters on December 13th from Lionsgate. Charles, thank you so much for taking a few minutes to chat with me today. I really, really appreciate it. Oh, gladly. Absolutely. Best of luck to you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Likewise. Hey, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to my interview with the screenwriter for the film Bombshell, Charles Randolph, here on the Next Best Picture podcast. You can subscribe to us on SoundCloud, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn Player FM, Acast, CastBox, and also on Spotify. Be sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and let us know what you think of the show. We really appreciate your feedback, as well as your support, which you can lend on over at Patreon. For $1 minimum a month, you will get some exclusive podcast content from us. Thank you for listening, as always, and we shall see you all next time.